please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Finally, finally, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders actually say what exactly it is that is so infuriating them about Jesus. On Sunday was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He had entered and looked around the temple area and then returned the two miles to Bethany with his disciples. On Monday, on his way back to Jerusalem, Jesus cursed the fig tree And after entering the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus definitively cleansed the temple, which means that Jesus, by his actions was pronouncing God's judgment on the religious leaders, especially who had turned it into a den of robbers. But he also, right there in the same place he had just cleansed, publicly taught the huge crowd of people gathered, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes saw with their own eyes what Jesus had just done to their exploitive and money-making bazaar. And they heard Jesus' very public denunciation of them and their leadership. And Mark then tells us that they feared Jesus. Because all the crowd was astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were jealous of him. They instinctively knew that he threatened their very existence and position and place in the life of Israel. He kept revealing to anyone and everyone their own wicked hearts, their evil aspirations, their greed, their thirst for power, and their hungry their hunger to be respected and deferred to, to be looked on as the scriptural experts who were more righteous than any other group in the land. But they had no answer for him. And this fear of Jesus led them to actively seeking a way to destroy him. In verse 19 of chapter 11, we read that when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, meaning they went back to Bethany again for the night. And on Tuesday, on their way back to Jerusalem in the morning, the disciples saw something. They saw the cursed fig tree was now withered. And this obviously led to a question from you-know-who, Peter which Jesus answered in a way they didn't expect by teaching them about their great need to have faith in God and exercise that faith 
especially in prayer. Jesus, what he was doing was using this opportunity with his men as they walked into Jerusalem to give them something they would recognize later as another great gift from their Lord. After the seeming desolation of their expectations and hope and purpose at the end of this week, just a few days away when Jesus is betrayed, arrested, crucified, and buried, these guys will see and talk with the risen Lord, which, of course, changes everything. The teachings of Jesus, especially ones like this about faith and the power of prayer, will finally be understood and treasured, exercised, and taught to so many others. Jesus knew what they needed. He gave it to them before the fact, knowing that they would fail greatly in the next coming few days. But when they saw him risen, they had something to remember as the Holy Spirit made all these connections for them about what Scripture was saying and what Jesus had taught. In this final week of Jesus' life, it's you know a lot like a huge storm coming that the disciples don't really see yet, culminating with their worst nightmare very late on Thursday night when Jesus is arrested. If you were able, would you please stand as we get back to Tuesday? I'm going to read Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. Mark 11, 27 through 33 from the English Standard Version. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority... Are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So in our passage today, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders actually say what exactly it is that's infuriating them so much. In verse 28, we see it. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? You realize that What he'd done the day before rocked their world. 
it was like an exclamation point because they already didn't have an answer for the miracles that they sometimes saw themselves and they obviously heard about. And they still could never answer him. They keep trying for a little more, and then they just completely get quiet. Not quite yet, though. So let's look first at who is asking this question. We have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The chief priests were the present ruling high priest and those who had formerly held this high office. That's called an exclusive little club and other dignitaries from whose ranks the high priest was usually chosen. Then there were the scribes. These were the men of the letters, those who studied and taught God's law, experts in the Jewish religion. And then there were the elders, who were the heads of the tribes of Israel, the heads of the tribe's main subdivisions. Most towns also had that were of any size and importance, also had their elders. So the question is whether these groups were coming on their own to Jesus to challenge his authority, or whether they were actually some kind of official delegation sent by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme Jewish court of justice, the great council of the Hebrews. By most accounts, the Sanhedrin, this, this body acted as a religious legislative body, trial court, and administrator of rituals. So how would you answer that question? Were they coming on their own? Or were they actually some kind of official delegation? Well, the context favors the idea that this was some sort of official Sanhedrin delegation because their question was actually designed to demand something. What was it? Show us your credentials. Where are they? What are they? Where did they come from? Because what are they saying? We certainly have given you no authority to do all the things that you've done and are doing. So what were they making clear? They were making very clear that they had not authorized Jesus, either himself and what he's doing or his teaching. Therefore, the conclusion is they were the authorities. Second, What had Jesus done that had infuriated them so much? Well, the most obvious thing that just had happened was the cleansing of the temple the day before. And what he had done was he had exposed the corrupt religious establishment, stripping away the claim of righteousness that they kept putting before everyone. As the extortion was actually named, it was pointed out and thrown out. Who would have liked to have been there and seen that? The contrast of the temple being a house of prayer but turned into a den of robbers couldn't have been any more clear. When sin is laid bare, there are only two 
real choices. One, you either deny it and cover it up, or try to, or you run to the Savior and cry out for his mercy. Those are your choices as well. It's also my choice. These self-righteous men were certainly not going to admit their sin, confess their sin, repent of their sin, and then run to the Savior. So they essentially were on the path of denial, which Jesus will again very soon make clear to everyone. But was cleansing the temple the only thing that Jesus had done that infuriated them? Don't forget these other things that, are, that have happened beginning on Sunday, just from Sunday, not to mention the years before this. What about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem? He had orchestrated a demonstration of praise that proclaimed him, Jesus, as the Messiah, the son of David. The people, remember what they shouted? Hosanna, which literally means save us now. So they were saying, save us now, son of David. Save us now. You're the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the king of Israel, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. One place was Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The people had spread their cloaks on the road before him, which was an ancient act of homage reserved only for high royalty. The people had spread leafy branches, we find out they're palm branches, on the road also proclaiming his claim to be the Messiah King. The shouts got louder and louder the closer he got to town. The crowds were enormous as people poured into Jerusalem for the Passover week. Children joined in. And there were the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders. They thought they could wrap all this up. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They were already planning, trying to find a way to kill him. And they could not think This is a whole lot of people in a very small area for us. Walled-in city. Everybody on the streets, literally. Hosanna, son of David. It was loud. It was clear. And these religious leaders couldn't do anything about it. Jesus' claims were crystal clear. And what about also Matthew telling us in his parallel account of Jesus' healing of the blind and the lame who came to him in the temple after he had cleared it out? That is hard to picture, or is it? It was cleaned out. The people's got the message. The extortionists were gone, embarrassed, 
exposed. Wow. The people with needs poured in and Jesus met them right where their needs were. Right after he'd chased away all the money changers and commercial extortioners. And, and the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they'd seen it all. Well, the rest of the encounter also gets interesting here. Nothing could touch their hearts, these men's hearts. After trying to figure out what to do, the delegation approaches Jesus as he was walking in the temple. In Luke's parallel account, we read that Jesus was busy teaching and preaching the gospel in Luke 20, verse 1. They finally ask him the question that reveals what was really going on in their hearts. And Jesus answers their question by asking them a question, one that puts the spotlight on their problem. In verses 29 and 30, we read, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. While John the Baptist was baptizing, he had proclaimed Jesus as being what? His superior. And much more than that. In Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, we read this. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, John the Baptist says, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. What is that a picture of? Judgment. In other words, this one who is coming is the righteous almighty judge. There's only one person that can be. And then in John 1, verses 29, 30, and throw 34 in there we get the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away what the sin of the world this is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me I've seen and I've borne witness That this is the Son of God. Could this get any clearer? So do you see how loaded Jesus' question is? It's loaded. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's a way of asking a much bigger question, is it not? Yes, it is. So, for the chief priests, scribes, and elders to acknowledge that Jesus, that John's ministry was from God, from heaven, was then admitting the authority of Jesus was God's very authority. If this delegation answered that John's ministry and baptism had a heavenly source, they knew what was coming. Then the question was, why didn't you believe him? You're the religious leaders, isn't this your job? And if they replied with what they really believed, 
or maybe what they wanted to believe, that the baptism of John was from men, then the crowds would do what? They would turn on these guys and get very hostile because they knew the people considered John to be a prophet. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Jesus had caught these hypocrites on the horns of a dilemma, and they knew it. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders took the coward's way out, and they just said, we do not know. And Jesus responded with, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, we'll get to the question you're asking right now. Why didn't he just use this to tell him? He did. It was subtle, but not really subtle, was it? Jesus, as God in human flesh, could not be caught by any of mankind's wily questions. He could not be trapped And this is the reason they feared him so very, very much. So what happens when people reject God's revelation? Isn't that what's going on? Have you noticed that when people reject revelation that's already been given and their hearts are set against dealing truthfully and honestly with that revelation, then there's no really honest way for them to demand more revelation? Under the pretense of just prove it and I'll believe it. Did you understand that? There's already been all the revelation anybody needs to see who Jesus is. So when people tell you, well, if he did a miracle here, I might believe. That's a lie. This Christian organization I was involved with in college went around and did surveys of people and asking them, you know, questions to try to reveal where they were. And this always came up. And what we found out was, really fast, was that people said, yeah, I might. might." First, the ones that said, no, there's no way I believe in God. And obviously, Jesus was just somebody else. I mean, he was a good guy, but that's it. And then we'd ask him, uh, well, what would happen if right now he appeared right here in your dorm room, said hi, introduced himself, and then disappeared? They said, that'd be pretty cool. And we said, well, would it affect you very much? No. Why not? Most of the answers said, because I don't want to believe him. So don't give in when people... Try to say, well, if he just did something, really, I'd believe it. It's not true. Just like it wouldn't be true for these guys. In one sense, this delegation did have the responsibility to check the credentials of those who claimed to be spokesmen for God. Yeah, that was their responsibility. But because they both misunderstood and rejected the revelation already given in the Old Testament scriptures, and rejected the witness that we just see of John the Baptist, these leaders proved that they were not equal up to the task. They raised the question of Jesus' authority, and Jesus raised the question 
of their competence to judge such an issue. We see over and over again that when unbelief investigates spiritual truth, it's already predisposed to reject it. Which once again makes us remember Jesus' words from chapter 10, verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And I hope we all realize that if Jesus had given them an answer, they would only have used it against him or tried to. They were not interested in learning the truth about either John the Baptist or Jesus. Their sole purpose was what? To induce Jesus to again claim Messiahship and divinity. Why? Why'd they want him to just come out and say it? So that they would have grounds for putting him to death for blasphemy. The religious leaders persisted in rejecting the light that Christ brought to them. So the really scary thing is that he therefore would turn that light off. Their self-satisfaction blinded them to the truth of the gospel and their own need of it. And for them, there would only be further warning and condemnation as we finish up this gospel account. So, let's look at a summary of what we should learn about Jesus' authority here. This has been a roundabout way to come at this, isn't it? Through this event. In other words, what I'm saying is, for all the engineers in here, it's, it's not an outline that flows from one thing to another and then comes out with the actual statement. Okay? So everybody that's, that doesn't quite think that way all the time, you should really like this account even more than normal because you see how Jesus asked the questions that brought out what he knew was on their heart when they asked the question. First thing we can get about this is Jesus' authority is God's authority. Jesus literally says this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. After all this has happened, after he has come back, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's for us to know and operate on. Notice that this is exactly what Jesus was implying by his question to the delegation. It's exactly what he was implying. Remember how Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins? Back in Mark 2, verse 5, Jesus said, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, What? Go run around. He said, Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes immediately saw this and said it was what? Blasphemy or making himself out to be God. 
Because only God can forgive sins. And the Jews knew that. So we must not ever take God's authority lightly. Ever. Secondly, Jesus' authority validates his teaching. This is what the people kept saying. Every time we saw him with crowds teaching, almost every time, we have the same response. They say that he taught with authority. What did they mean? They mean this was totally different from the way the scribes and the Pharisees were always quoting somebody, rabbi or teacher. They were never teaching with authority. It was always, he said, they said, they said, they said this, so this guy said this, so this guy said this, and this is what we say. How did Jesus start off? You've heard that it was said in the scriptures. The word says this. No one else is then completely true but Jesus. No one else can be trusted to tell you the truth at all times. I just think about that in the day we live. When you open up the word of God, it's completely trustworthy. What else is? Not much. Thirdly, Considering Jesus' authority to forgive sin should be important for us. This is maybe the most important point simply because sin is our greatest problem. Sin keeps us from God, keeps us from the truth, because sin causes us to hide from the truth And hang on to our sin at all costs, which logically makes absolutely no sense. But sin is powerful and deceptive, and it actually does enslave us. Thus the battle to get through it and over it. We need a forgiveness that's based on the punishment of our sins in another, another who is able to bear that judgment for us. That's the issue of redemption. And there's only one, and that's Jesus, and he did it. Jesus died in our place so that he can justly forgive the sin of all who will come to him asking for salvation. The leaders of Israel would not acknowledge Jesus' authority or their own sin. They wanted to be the authority themselves. And they perished in their sins. And many will perish for exactly the same reason. They cling to their own supposed authority and will not come to Jesus. What about you? Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you again for your word. These accounts of Jesus in his 
time upon this earth in his first coming humble us. They shout out to us. They speak right to our hearts, right where we are. We respond with humility, gratefulness, many times tears, much joy as we realize what you have done to accomplish for us what we could never do for ourselves. Oh Lord, we see in Jesus the authority that belongs to you, the triune God that was expressed, demonstrated, and people's sin was still so hard. They didn't want anything to do with him. In fact, they wanted him gone. You know, God, we confess our hearts were the same way until you broke them, made them alive again in Christ, new hearts in him. Only you could do that. It's impossible for man to do, but all things are possible with you. And for that, we belong to you. And we, uh, we just announce that, and we need to announce it in our own hearts over and over as we so easily forget. You have bought your people with the price of your son's blood. All of our sins are forgiven in him. And for that, we are so grateful as we learn to depend upon your indwelling spirit to walk with you day day by day in humble dependence in the power of your spirit as you get us through this life, increase our trust, and do things that we can't possibly even put together. Sometimes until much later, we realize, look what you have done. And Lord, we give you that praise today. We thank you for what you teach us in your word, the accounts of Christ and these disciples who are just mirrors of us and our own responses and yet we see what, how you changed them when Jesus rose and they saw him. And Lord, we need to focus on the truth because you're the only one who speaks total perfect truth to us in your word. And for that, we are so, so grateful. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? So with all that in mind, let me read a couple of verses from Luke 24 and see if this fits and warms your hearts as we dismiss. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Amen. You're dismissed.